2: Hello, how are you doing? Well, I'd say it's been the sort of the week in Westminster.
3: So, what has it been like in those in the the latest
2: episode of the national (laughs) sort of calamity? Yes, I wouldn't say it's going very well. How would your observations be from the
3: outside? I would say it doesn't appear like it's going very well. But then sometimes, you know, I would think, do we do we have a different idea on the outside? What do you think the public are thinking of it? I think we're just all thinking this is this is yeah. insane, what's happening, and you can't say anything to uh, to um to reassure us no, what was it like in the lobbies because there was the meaningful vote two this week, it looks like there'll be meaningful vote three as well. What was it like sort of in the lobbies on the night?
2: Um, normally, when you're winning a vote and the government's losing, there's sort of great jubilation. I wouldn't say there's much jubilation around. You know what I mean? I think people's. I think it's more sort of anxiety rather than jubilation. And and what about in the chamber?
3: Did do you join in with jeering?
2: Yeah, no, I don't join in the jeering really.
3: Do you ever jeer?
2: Have you jeered? Mm, only on this podcast. No. <laughs> uh, do you never do? Sometimes do you, a bit of sort of harumphing. I think do you quiet like, harumphing.
3: What do you, do you like that?
2: Whoa. Oh, come off it! I'll say. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, For <Really>? goodness' sake. <laughs>
3: Oh, I'd love to love to see a bit of that.
2: Well, a bit, the thing is, everybody got very outraged after what she said of no deal, and she kept shaking her head. So I actually got up and did a point of order and said, look, instead of the premise of shaking her head, wasn't she coming and explain why she disagrees with it? But she, to be fair, she had sort of you know, nearly lost her voice.
3: Part of the way she has been with this deal reminded me of a little bit of you with your make your own sandwich shop idea, because <laughs> people keep. Saying Edit's not a good idea. This isn't going to work. But You think yeah. I
2: should have meaningful vote three or make <laughs> the, your own sandwich. Exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I should say that to her. that yeah. I say, Look, it's like me it's like the make your own sandwich thing, this meaningful vote thing. But that
3: would involve I you think, having to have the humility to accept that your
2: make your own sandwich chain is a bad but idea. But also don't have to like explain the <laughs> make your own sandwich thing. <laughs> I'm not sure it's I mean You know, there's obviously a fine judgment on what appropriate point of order is in the House of (laughs) Commons. But I think getting up and saying, Mr Speaker, this is like my make-your-own-sandwich-shop idea on my award-winning podcast, you know, where (laughs) I kept going with my make-your-own-sandwich idea. And, you know, I don't think it's orderly to carry on with this idea when people are clearly dismissing the idea and there's the issue of the goop and hygiene (laughs) and so on. Uh, And really the Prime Minister's meaningful vote, number Twelve is is like I think I think I'd have lost people. By right, day. right. I'm not sure it would be classified as point of order either.
3: Did you at least feel a bit sorry for her lose losing a voice like that?
2: I did. I actually sent somebody who I know in in, in Downing Street. Do you remember? I lost my voice uh before prime minister's questions once and then i sort of got it back for somebody a mercy dash for kind of weird steroid things you call uh, the witch doctor yeah and all kinds of other things so I, I don't know uh, i sort of ma- i mailed it in <laughs> <laughs> so on the podcast this week we're talking about what is i think one of the most scandalous things in our country which is that poverty is affecting more and more working people you've got 8.3 million adults and children in working households in poverty Working poverty among adults is the highest in 20 years. Now, there are solutions to it, and we're going to be talking both to people here about the concept of the living wage and other things that can be done, and also about a very successful campaign in America called the Fight for 15, which is a fight for a $15 minimum wage. And it's actually a very inspiring conversation about the campaigns that people are running and also how how people, how our listeners can get involved in living wage campaigns in their area or, or in their workplace.
3: And we're joined by comedian Pierre Novelli, who will be pitching us his ideas, which could be, if they were implemented, reasons to be cheerful. What's yours? What's my reason to be cheerful this week? I went to a supper club. So I said this to somebody a couple of days ago, and they said, that doesn't sound like you. I said, but I, I love supper. And they thought I'd gone to some kind of salon for like-minded individuals where you all sit around and have you know high-minded conversation uh, but it wasn't one of those it was just where somebody i got the impression who, who um would like to open a restaurant but they need to do some dry runs and get a bit of a head of steam going so i went to one of those and it was great
2: why is it called a supper club though
3: because they haven't got an actual restaurant yet so they do a takeover of like a little cafe and they descend on it and use their kitchen and then everybody all has to sit down at the same time did you have to do anything I just had to eat. I was worried. I was worried that I'd have to talk to the fellow diners. But all I had to say to one of them was, oh, can you pass me the bottle of water, please? And that was it. And what did you have? It was it was, it was f- food of the Silk Road. What's your reason to be cheerful?
2: My reason to be cheerful is that I... Today, I met Morton Harkett and Mags from Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Aha. Uh-huh.
3: How was that? Because, you know, we, we all know that your Take all-time favourite song of all time is Take On Me. And I
2: did the whole business. You so know. why were you meeting them? What was the, what was the context? Take On Me is approaching its a billionth view on YouTube, which is almost as many as our things on YouTube. The record companies make a little film and they knew I was a fan. So I met them and it was Good. Norway plus
1: reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd
3: so we're delighted to be joined now from Chicago by Tyree Johnson who is a fight for 15 campaigner and a McDonald's worker Tyree hello hello can you tell us a little about how you came to be involved with fight for 15 and what your history with McDonald's is
4: I've been in McDonald's work for 27 years. And in August of 2012, uh, a young lady came and got me at, at my McDonald's store and took me for a cup of coffee and sat me down and explained to me what Fight for 15 was all about and why it's important to join and get started. So once she explained to me what it was all about and I understood everything, I simply signed the card and became a member of the Fight for 15 in August of 2012.
3: And what was it about what she told you that, that clicked with you? She said,
4: you can be a leader in your store. All you have to do is communicate with your co-workers. And the way I'm describing to you how important it is to be a 5 for 15 leader, you can also educate your co-workers as well. She taught me how to get on Facebook and set up all my emails. And I got introduced to 5 for 15 members. I've been dedicated to McDonald's. But the poverty wages is just not helping me survive. So I stayed dedicated to 515 and kept my McDonald's job. Just stay dedicated. And, and you've
3: had some success because in February of this year, Illinois became the fifth state in the United States to pass a $15 minimum wage law. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the, the difference that will make to you?
4: It will mean a whole lot for me. I can pay bills on time. I can stop living in poverty. I can put some money up for a savings account. I can take care of my health uh, benefits. You know, it's it's a shame when your family member come to you and ask you for money and you can't provide for them. But now I can. And, uh, yes, I would have had the pleasure of going to Springfield and watching our governor sign the bill.
3: You were there at the governor's mansion at the signing?
4: Yes. It was an SB1 bill, and they got approved. 69 to 47, and we won.
2: And when you started your fight, Tyree, what were McDonald's saying to you?
4: Oh, you're wasting your time. $15 is never going to happen. You're wasting your time with this movement stuff. Just focus on your McDonald's job and do what you have to do here. But I told them, no, you're wrong. I'm going to keep fighting, and when you fight, you win. Giving up and quitting will never happen with me. I'm going to stick with this fight and keep uh and don't let McDonald's try to talk me out of nothing.
2: And now you've ended up in the governor's mansion with the $15 minimum wage achieved. What do they say to you now?
4: I get respected on the job. and My co-workers congratulated me. Thank you for fighting for me. We got $15. Thank you. When they read the newspaper and I went back to my job and I said, we won. We won. And they was like, oh, thank you. God bless you. I I love you for that. You You fought for us. It motivated me to stay involved with my fight and continue to fight McDonald's uh, because their policies, I don't agree with their policies, so I'm going to keep fighting and stay involved Fight for 15 It's power in numbers. And if we stay together and keep acting like the union, we can win.
2: Tyree, you've obviously got the magic touch. uh, And now that you've won the fight for 15 in Illinois, where do you take it next?
4: We're fighting for the union now. You can't have one without the other. You have to keep fighting. The fight is not over. We want 15, but we need a union because with the union, they would have to treat us with respect and give us what we deserve and not play around with our hours. We need our health benefits. We need childcare. We need everything. We need an end to sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace. All those factors come into play once we get this union.
2: Tyree Johnson, you're such an inspiring example to us all. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much.
4: And have
2: a blessed day. So let's now turn to, if you like, the British version of the Fight for 15, which has been the fight for a living wage. And I'm delighted that we've got Lola McAvoy from the Living Wage Foundation, Campaigns Director, who's joining us. Hi. Thanks so much for coming in. Tell us, first of all, about the Living Wage Foundation and how it came about.
1: The Living Wage Campaign started in 2001 by community organisers from Citizens UK, which is uh, the the home of community organising in the UK. And they um, went into East London and started meeting with people from different institutions, so like mosques, churches, schools, and asking them what was going on in their lives and what issues were affecting them. And over and over and over again, kept coming out that low pay was a huge issue and people were working sort of two or three jobs, not being able to make ends meet on the minimum wage. So that's how the idea, came about that they should start thinking about campaigning for a living wage. And when they were talking to these leaders and these people from the community, they found one guy called Abdul. And it turns out that he was an outsourced cleaner working at HSBC. And he was cleaning the CEO's office every night and had never met him. And so, obviously, from a campaigning point of view... Golden opportunity. <laughs> absolute campaign gold. And he was a great guy who was incredibly brave. And he said, OK, let's do this. Let's, you know, find a way to lean into this big, powerful organisation and try and make a difference and win a living wage. And what happened was that they um, found different people who wanted to donate to the campaign and bought shares in HSBC and then went and spoke at the AGM and said to the chief exec, you know, I'm Abdul and I clean your office and yet I can't see my children because I'm working two or three jobs and what you're paying me isn't a real living wage. And that's really what Put a rocket underneath the uh, campaign after that it went from strength to strength, and then in two thousand and eleven the foundation was set up as the business facing arms so really we're the organization at the heart of the movement and we provide the nuts and bolts of accreditation to the five thousand businesses who go further than the government minimum
2: It started in two thousand and one and now there are five thousand businesses signed up and accredited. What does that mean accredited
1: so um living wage accreditation is quite radical, two words you don't often hear in a sentence, Yeah. because what it means is that they pay all of the directly employed staff a real living wage, that's £9 an hour in the UK with a higher London living wage of £10.55 an hour. But they also include their third-party outsourced staff. So the cleaners, caterers, security guards are included in that accreditation, and that is really what makes the difference to those low-paid workers.
2: Then just to sort of avoid confusion... Explain to us the difference between your real living wage and what's called the national living wage, which was introduced by George Osborne when he was chancellor.
3: And then while you're at it, can you clear up for me um, why the minimum wage shouldn't just be the living wage?
1: So the national living wage, which is the government minimum for over 25s, is pegged to 60% of median earnings. And the Chancellor announced recently that they're going to look to extend it to 66% of median earnings, but it has no bearing on living costs. It has nothing to do with the cost of living. So our rate is independently calculated each year by the Resolution Foundation, and it takes into account things like travel costs, inflation, um, housing, bills, but it also takes into account a social consensus for what people who are working should be able to afford So one year a smartphone might have gone in or another year they might take into account people needing a car when public transport might not be sufficient anymore. So um, the reason why the Living Wage Foundation doesn't call on government to make the real living wage the government minimum is because our campaign has always been about not waiting for um, politicians to make decisions. Ours has always been about getting businesses to act now. Why wait for the next general election, the general election after that, and then a couple of years in for them to uplift the minimum wage? What we want to see is businesses who can afford it, and there are plenty, (laughs) signing up to pay the real living wage now.
3: Talk us through the reasons you give to businesses uh, for paying the living wage, why it's you know good for their businesses and their employees, and then what the reaction tends to be.
1: <laughs> well, first of all, I would say that the majority of our businesses who sign up do tell us that it's a values-led decision, that they weren't... Again, it comes down to this interesting point about outsourcing. A lot of our businesses didn't realise that there was low pay in their in their cleaners. They didn't, didn't really know what their cleaners were paid because they're outsourced, or they didn't know that the security guards weren't earning enough to live on. Um, so that's the first thing, is that when we explained them that you have actually got real issues with low pay in your organisation, that's when they start thinking about accreditation. But also there are huge business benefits. So the more low paid people you give a pay rise to, the more business benefits you'll see. Obviously that's not rocket science. Um, But they see a higher motivated uh, workforce, obviously higher retention rates because people don't leave the job so quickly, um, which then saves on HR costs for recruitment. So there are big and brand benefits. You know, ultimately when you hear that your football team pays the real living wage, you're over the moon.
3: If they're accredited by you, they can't be sort of, one step removed from subcontractors like cleaners and so on. Everybody they subcontract as an employee also has to receive the living wage.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the way it works is that um, if you have a member of staff who works for two hours or more a week for eight consecutive weeks on your premises – they fall within scope of living wage accreditation. So that is ultimately cleaners, caterers, security guards, and all those people that you might see wearing a different uniform, but ultimately are in the same workplace every day.
2: How much of a problem is outsourcing?
1: It's an interesting point because we've got these this scheme called the Recognised Service Provider Scheme. Again, quite dry but pretty rad. And um, they <laughs> they Like are... you, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank so... <laughs> you.
2: Quite dry but pretty rad. <laughs> Maybe that should be my slogan. <laughs> <laughs> dry but rad. Yes.
1: <laughs> so the Recognised Service Provider... You've invented
2: providers. a new slogan for us, Lolo, uh, for yeah, me. It's, yeah. It's great, it's great. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> um, so the recognised service providers are facilities management firms. So they're the ones that, they're your Carillions, your InterServs, your Sodexo's, and um, service, that's, that's the facilities management sector. And we've got service providers who sign up to our scheme as recognised service providers, and they offer two bids. So when they are talking to an organisation, they'll say, look, because of the market rate, which is often the government minimum for this contract, we want you to think about paying the living wage. So we'll cost up what it would co- what it would cost you to ensure that all your cleaners are paid the living wage, and then we'll also offer you a market rate um, bid as well. And it's up to you as the client to make the decision. Now, what we've seen from that scheme is that loads of the clients are signing up to the real living wage uh, to do to choose the real living wage bid.
3: What sort of percentage?
1: So we've seen, depending on the service providers, one of our service providers I think is. Um, made sure that all out of all of his contracts, 70% of them are now real living wage, which is pretty rad. One of the things that I would say about the outsourcing sector and the impact it has on um, the living wage is when you dig deep into the data. So... Outsourced workers aren't included in gender pay gap reporting. They're right. not included in freedom of information requests. They're not included in parliamentary questions. So they're completely invisible. That's
2: really important. It yeah. is
1: interesting because they're completely invisible from any public data. So if you as a campaigner, Jeff, decided that you wanted to find out if your council were paying the real living wage and you thought, oh, I'll pop an FOI in and find out, they might come back and say, oh, actually 10 people, only 10 people yeah. are paid below the living wage but they're masking all of their cases." As clean as security right. guards, refuse collectors, and that's not even
2: getting else. into suppliers. That's yes. a whole. That's suppliers is a whole different thing. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So people Suppli- you buy from and all that.
1: Exactly. And is that
2: part of what you do?
1: So we we um, the, the, the people who fall into scope. No, so we don't do supply chain. Right. The people who fall into scope. It's just people who are working basically on your premises or in right. a franchise.
2: Now, one of the most important things about your campaign is it hasn't sort of happened just because nice businesses wanted to make it happen. It's because of pressure, hasn't it? I mean, it's your uh, yeah, campaigners. I think that's to say, Yeah, yeah I mean, it's your campaigners, <laughs> Citizens UK. A
1: lot of the trade unions. A lot of the
2: trade unions. That's the thing. So, for our listeners, how can they get involved in some of your your campaigns? I mean, you've got this campaign at Picture House, which is ongoing. Tell us about some of your campaigns you've got going on at the moment, and how our listeners can can sort of you know help make it happen.
1: I think the best way would be as an employee go and ask your HR manager, are you accredited with the Living Wage Foundation? Because your HR manager will say, oh, of course we pay the Living Wage. You get above it, don't you? And then you need to say to them as a employee of any any type of we because we accredit all types of em, um of employers we need to say to those hr managers are you accredited is the house
2: of commons accredited
1: so uh the house of commons is accredited but uh the cabinet office isn't so right. you've got a lot of government departments you've got low pay in the government yeah. departments no, I knew the that, cleaners but... of whitehall but yeah. you haven't but the uh, house of commons the house of lords are accredited
2: right. sorry anyway sorry <laughs> so
1: if you if your listeners wanted to get involved, what I would suggest the first thing they do is go and talk to HR, find out, are we paying the living wage to our cleaners? Um, and if we are, can we accredit with the Living Wage Foundation? Just see what they say. Because a lot of them... And if we're,
2: we're not, walk uh, out.
1: <laughs> and if we're not, think Withdraw your labour. <laughs> well, a lot of the... <laughs> A lot of the successes of the first, campaign maybe. have been from people taking a stand, um, so and becoming living wage champions. Give internally. us some heartwarming
2: examples. Okay, I'll give
1: you my fa- well. My favourite example yeah. is big shout out to Stuart. rad,
2: rad but dry examples.
1: <laughs> Stuart Wright at Aviva. So he's um, facilities uh, director of facilities at Aviva. So again, you know, not somebody you naturally think would be a campaigner. Yeah. But what's interesting about Stuart is that so so we said the power of the Living Wage Campaign is always in testimony. And that's a bit of a jargony word, but it means lived experience. So a story from somebody who's directly impacted by this campaign. Instead of a load of lovely middle class people deciding what they want to do in an attic at Islington, it might be that they... For example. For example, EG. It's more about making sure that when we're speaking um, to people, we're finding these li- these lived experiences and these testimonies. And Stuart, we said that to Stuart, we laid the challenge down and said to him, look Stuart, you need to find us, somebody who's been impacted in Aviva. And he went, alright, leave it with me. And he went through the whole of Aviva, and he went through all of his comms people, and he went through, you know, this is a massive FTSE 100. And he found Lynn and Lynn's story is fantastic so I hope I could do her justice but basically she's a grandma and she's a cleaner at Eva in Norwich and uh, she's like been there for a few years and loves her job and um, she a couple of years ago before they were accredited she became um, she got custody of her grandchild her granddaughter and so she realized that actually money was going to be tight she's gonna be looking after her granddaughter and then she says you know just in the nick of time Uh, Aviva accredited and she got that little pay bump and what she did with that money was put it away she didn't spend it on herself she didn't spend it on all the things that you might you know think somebody might spend it on spend it on she saved it up so that her granddaughter could have a laptop so she could do her homework from home instead of in the school library when she was prepping for her GCSEs and you know Big up to Lynn because she's told that story, um, on the media. She's told that story in Parliament, but also big up to Stuart because he decided that actually this was a campaign above and above, above and beyond his normal role. And that's what, that's what the listeners can really do. If they great. want to get involved yeah. in the campaign. That's how so I would do go
2: it. on your website and all of that. Love
1: yeah. You. Yeah. Go on the website. Sign up. If you are an employer, obviously sign up.
3: <laughs> and, and I know you've said that it's not about waiting for government to catch up but we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy where I, where I suddenly find myself as benign ruler. But all I'm interested in really is... <laughs> let's a, be
2: honest, crazier th- things
3: are happening in the country it's, than it's this. I mean, you know. <laughs> and all I'm really interested in is having my face on stamp. So I do a lot of delegation. Mm. If, if we were to appoint you as uh, Minister for Work, perhaps, <laughs> what is the first thing you would do in that position? In well, other words, what could government do better?
1: Okay, so... Um, as I said, you know, the campaign has relied, has, has has been a success without calling on government to do anything. But if, you know, if you put me in a bind and said I had to come up with something, I would first of all accredit the Cabinet Office to make sure that all those cleaners in Whitehall were paid the real living wage. And then, and again, this is a bit technical, I would um, I would think about stipulating that living wage was a really good way of demonstrating social value in the national procurement framework so that there's £250 billion pounds of public money going on services and goods and services through um, government procurement. I would put living wage in there so that to win a contract with government or with the public sector... Or any public money, you had to pay everybody the real living wage.
2: Great idea. And do we have any data on how much of that 250 billion pounds is being spent on companies that aren't living wage?
1: We could probably find out how many of them are get, are being spent with contractors that aren't living wage. But obviously, as I explained, service providers don't tend to accredit; they tend to go on what, what you the, need is a
2: willing MP who'd be willing to ask parliamentary questions and find out about it. But they're it. missing.
1: They're missing from the data. What? So if you, if oh, you, even if you did ask parliamentary questions mm. about those contracts, you'd, you'd be you wouldn't. Know. You wouldn't know how many people were being paid less than the living wage. And I think that is that's what's quite interesting about it.
3: You were very eager to ask a question on that, weren't yeah. you? Well, I've, I think Before was, when you we mentioned the the cabinet office, you were keen to go to the HR department, start asking them questions. I mean you and, can,
1: obviously. That'll be yeah. great.
3: <laughs> I'm
2: young and enthusiastic. <laughs>
1: It's more more about thinking about how we can make sure that these invisible workers are more visible in data, really. And that would be the ask for government, because ultimately, at the moment, we have no idea what the extent of low pay is in our public sector.
2: Lola McAvoy, you've been brilliant. You've coined a new slogan for us. (laughs) Dry but rad. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Joining us
3: now, Ed lights up like a firefly whenever he's around. It's Torsten Bell, Torstikens. director of
5: the Resolution Foundation. Hello Torsten. Hello. It's always nice that some people are easily pleased. You're a, you're <laughs> our
2: explainer in chief, Torsten. And, and also co-park runner the two of you. He's cl- slightly faster than me. Slightly means a lot. What are you
5: coming in at these days? 27-something. Okay, seven minutes, yeah. Mm. But the good news is there's room for improvement. You are improvement. significantly younger than me. I am a little bit younger.
3: Yeah. What, what have you noticed about Ed's running technique?
5: Um, well, I'd say this. If you were doing a kind of, you know, analysis of it, you would say there were challenges on the speed and on the style. Um, but there's still time for both of those things I to would improve. have thought
2: the Swedish judge was giving me good marks on artistic impression. There, no? um, It depends how much kind of flapping you want in your running <laughs> <room>. <laughs> so rude right back to okay so you're our explainer in chief as i say let's just start we've we've heard about the fight for 15 and we've heard from the living wage foundation who i know you work with have these campaigns made a difference on the sort of stats and the impact on people's lives in your view
5: these campaigns first of all Are a really good thing. They're a good thing because one, they actually get people's living standards up, and two, they're engaging civil society in issues that too often are left just for politicians. Yeah, to debate. And that's a good thing. And they create energy and they show people, you know, if we step back and look at Britain over the 25 years, one of the sad things is that nobody talked about or thought low pay mm-hmm. was an issue even though a fifth of the population were low paid for we the did old, when I was leader the old person now and again yeah. chatted about it but anyway so those are that's a really good thing and that's building yeah. popular pressure for it in terms of actual numbers of people of course um, the living wage and the, the individual cities in the US aren't as important as the legal minimum wages which affect a much larger number of people but that doesn't mean they're not important both for setting pressure and for the individual's concern when they make a lot of difference and
2: just to be clear about what's happening here, and, and this is a sort of, I think it's a paradox or an apparent paradox, I think you're going to have to explain, which is that low pay is going down, partly as a result of these campaigns, partly because of the what's called the national living wage, although as we've heard, it's not the sort of real living wage as, as proposed by the Living Wage Foundation. The number of people in, on low pay is is going down, but poverty for people in work is actually at its highest level for 20 years.
5: Yeah, so that that is an important paradox to understand about what the nature of kind of what modern Britain and kind of living standards of the country is, which is we are seeing the first big falls in low pay since the 1990s. At the moment. When Labour
2: introduced the minimum wage, so
5: Labour introduced the minimum wage at the end of the 1990s. But the um, but because the minimum wage was coming in at a relatively low rate at that point, it didn't get the low pay rate down. And the the slow and steady increase of that rate through the 2000s and now big rises of the minimum wage through the national living wage that is causing the first big falls in. Uh, low pay that as we've measured seen. by 30s, what? As measured by somebody who is working but is below sixty uh, percent of the median wage, the typical earner. So they're earning, you know, just below two thirds of a normal salary. The, um, now, because the national living wage is increasing, it's seven eighty three right now, and in a few weeks it will go up to eight pounds twenty one. Those are relatively large rises, and they're faster rises in the way the minimum wage than you're seeing for people. Uh, in the, mid- the middle of the earnings distribution who are only seeing wage rise of 3% or so, the, um, which is another big problem we're facing. So th- that's the good news. The good news is low pay is falling. More people at the bottom are getting pay rises that are taking them out of low Pay now. The bad news is that that is not all that matters for family and household incomes, and that is and it's incomes and the whole household and the costs as well as the money coming in that matters for people's poverty. And unfortunately, child poverty is been has been rising reasonably slowly, but rising over the last few years, and we forecast it to rise. Possibly to record levels in the next few years, and that is one of the big problems facing the
2: country. And that's what people should be talking and, about. And child poverty for families who are working—that's a, a very high level. I think I am right in saying that, according to the Roundtree Foundation, eight point eight million uh, working-age adults and children are, are in work and in poverty, and that's something like eighteen percent of the population.
5: Yeah. So most poverty in
2: Britain today is
5: in working households. So the kind of the myth that people have got in their heads that poverty looks either like a really poor pensioner back in the 1990s, or it looks like, you know, feckless parents who don't work and who are therefore keeping their kids in poverty, which is what you too often heard. Maybe less, actually. I think you less hear it today, but you five years ago, you would have heard it. Those things are not the problem today. The problem today is parents with children who are in work, but are not. Um, bringing home enough and getting enough support from the state to take them over the poverty line. That is what poverty looks like in 21st century Britain. So is the cost of living getting more expensive or is it to do with uh, government austerity? Um, So there's a bit of both of that. Over the long term, rising housing costs have been a big part of what makes it hard to um, to live on low incomes in Britain, in particular as we've then made housing benefit, the money we pay from the state to help people pay their rent, that's become less generous, particularly recently. That is having a big effect. But the thing that's driving up child poverty right now and in the next few years is active government decisions to reduce the support via the welfare state for lower income families. So, so it's not universal credit that is doing the increase in child poverty. It's just happening at the same time. What's causing the increase in child poverty is the freeze of all working age benefits. They've been frozen for four years. The last freeze is coming into place in just three weeks time that has taken four and a half billion pounds off lower income families that is a bigger cause of the child poverty rise we're seeing and the government has also restricted the support that goes to larger families those with more than two children and in general the system has just become less generous families are getting less money through either tax credits or universal credit so yes it's happening at the same time as universal credit but child poverty increases
2: is not just about universal credit so what are we going to do about it you know about this Jeffocracy, benign oh, yeah, sort of yeah, ruler. Yeah, yeah. Uh it's very dangerous. If he, I'm very benign. Uh that's if, what they all say. If he if, <laughs> if, he, if he if he sort of made you the Secretary of State very for bad work idea. pensions and, you know, general yeah. okay, control freakery. Okay. Um what would you be uh what what's the sort of what's the give us the kind of okay. toolbox and then what you do? Well the first thing to say is we need to keep on being ambitious
5: about the minimum wage. We still want to see people on lower earnings getting higher pay, so long as that doesn't have a big effect on the employment rate. And so far, with the big increases we've had here, those haven't led to problems on employment. In fact we have record employment. And that's quite significant,
2: isn't it? Because the old thinking was if you increase the minimum wage, it you know, causes a fall in employment and so on. That was the argument people made. Absolutely. And there's been a transformation in both policymaking
5: circles but also amongst economists about being much less uh, anxious about whether uh, pushing a bit more on the minimum wage will cause bigger unemployment. And is it because now, these big
2: companies can afford it, or what's the reason?
5: Yeah, so it is to do with whether who has mark, who has power in the labour market. And if, you know, one thing you would conclude from the big rise of the minimum wage not having an effect on employment rates is that low-paid workers did not have enough power, and that the point of minimum wages is to give them back that power. So that's a really good thing. We should keep going on that. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be. You know we don 't know what too high looks like on the minimum wage. There will be a level that is too high they, and so we shouldn 't just be kind of completely gung ho about it, but we should be ambitious, push it up while keeping on looking at the evidence to make sure there 's not an employment effect. So just keep doing that then secondly, we need to recognize that. The family income is not just about hourly earnings, how much you get paid per hour. It matters a lot how many hours you do in the week. In particular, that is true for lower paid workers who are much more likely to be part time and if you look at the big trends in britain over the last 20 years you can see a trend for lower paid men in particular towards part-time work and that is one of the contributing factors not chosen
2: part-time work but sort of involuntary is that right so if you look for some for lower paid men in particular
5: yes their low their part-time and low hours is likely to be involuntary or more likely to be involuntary than other groups higher paid workers tend to say they actually want to reduce their hours work so yeah that's the that's the big picture so we should keep focusing on that we should be in favor of giving people more power and control over the hours they work and then we also. Also need to help people progress off the way, the minimum wage on to higher wages and in too many sectors at the moment the chances of progressing are very low so if you look at retail for example sales assistants in retail sector only 4% of them um, progress off that job into being sales supervisors even over 5 years, in fact if they want to get promoted they basically have to leave the sector at the moment and that is a very bad thing, not least because um, if you're working in a um, retail job that isn't near lots of other jobs you, can't, you haven't got those options so we need to be focusing on progression within work, not just pay at the very bottom but we also need to recognize the state's got to cough up like if you want child poverty to come down children are expensive and the labor market is not going to cover all the extra costs we're not going to start having a different minimum wage rate for people with kids and those without and that is what the social security system exists for that is why we pay child benefit and have been doing for decades that is what universal credit is there for and if you don't make that system generous enough you will see rises in child poverty and there's no
2: way around that and housing costs are just very expensive, and therefore, this is a big this is a big part of the problem. Yeah. So the this is housing costs, not ha- so you know in in podcast land and
5: journalism land, housing means home ownership and uh, that, and obviously the things that are driving down home ownership are high housing prices. That is driven by a lot of things, including yeah. low interest rates. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about housing costs, so rents in particular. Yeah. And if you know if I look at the child poverty figures it's pretty likely that by, you know, within the next five years, more than half of children growing up in either the social or the private rented sector will be in
2: poverty. I suppose one of the things that this conversation gets across is that you need a whole range of tools to to deal with this. And, you know, some of them are sort of blunt instruments. doesn't mean they're not important. One thing we've not mentioned is the role of trade unions in bidding up wages. That's part of it, surely. So if you want to
5: see poverty coming down, then yes, it would help to have a broader push up on wages, particularly amongst lower, but not the very minimum-paid workers. And one of the ways that you can do that is to make sure workers have more power, and in particular, lower-paid workers have more power. And that is where trade unions can come in. And you know, the historical evidence shows, and actually, cross-country evidence shows that in sectors with a strong union presence, you can get better pay outcomes for the low, the, you know, the bottom half of the earning distribution. So that is part of the answer in some sectors,
3: yeah. So Torsten, just finally, I was feeling quite optimistic earlier. Until we met you. Until we met you <laughs> um, about the oh the campaigning God. around living
5: wages. What What have you got for us to be optimistic about? Well, let's start with what's to be pessimistic about. What you should be pessimistic about is that we're <laughs> I think on the... Like, no, we're coming back. I'm going to end on optimism. You don't want to get your ordering wrong here. Come on. Right. So what is there to be pessimistic about? If we don't do something, child poverty rates are going to rise in the next few years. And that is something that should make everybody angry and make all politicians want to change that direction what is there to be optimistic about is that sometimes these worrying trends look like there's nothing you can do but both what's going on today and history teaches us that policy can do something about these things so let's take that history teaches us that in the 1990s people thought having 20 of the population in low pay was just something that we were going to be stuck with forever and we couldn't do anything about it because minimum wages were mad and they'd lead to loads of job losses policymakers pushed ahead with the minimum wage and then with the ramping up of the minimum wage into the national living wage more recently and that is bringing down low pay so reason for optimism one Reason for optimism, too, is that just like we can bring down low pay, we can bring down child poverty. And child poverty in the 2000s fell hugely, nearly halving, nearly halving over that period. Why? Because politicians, policymakers, public campaigners and others said, it is not okay for no fault of your own to be brought up in poverty. And the state's job is to support parents in bringing up kids. That doesn't happen. And that can be done. It does require difficult choices, but those can be made. So from both low pay and child poverty, we know... Policy can make a difference. So it's time to get on with it. Torstegans, thanks, thanks so, so much. So what do you think?
3: Well, I think there's a couple of exciting things. Yeah. I think, firstly, I can sometimes be sceptical about companies and corporations and just feel like whatever they can do to add to the profit margins. Yeah. And it's exciting that this living wage campaign and things like it, they're, they're going to these corporations and showing benefits of, uh, of, Definitely. of paying people Definitely. more. But also this idea of what it says about you as a company and companies having values and tapping into that. think um, think I think that's quite exciting and also something we've talked about a lot with this podcast is you know sometimes you want to feel like you're giving people something they can go away and do and if you listen to this you can go away, like Lola said, and talk to the HR people at your company and, and see, you know, what their policy is on it and see if they'd be interested in getting living wage
2: accreditation. If you're not inspired by Tyree, then, you know, you need to get out more. I mean, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Don't you think he was incredibly oh, was inspiring? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, you know, it's all started with a cup of coffee with an organiser and now he's a sort of, you know, not just led the fight for 15, was at the governor's mansion, but, you know, he wants to go further. I, I think the other thing that... that i take out of it and i think your point about activism is right and what our listeners can do is you know you need all of the tools i mean that's sort of what the torston bit of the interview shows you know you need the living wage minimum wage but you also need there's no point in increasing the living wage and then cutting the tax credits you need all of these things working in concert but it but it definitely can be done
1: email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcasts or search for our Facebook
0: page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away.
3: And here to pitch us some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Piano Velli, or should I say comedian and podcaster now?
6: Yes, that's right, i finally joined the, the noble ranks. Yeah, yeah, I think
3: there are more podcasters than non-podcasters. More podcasters than audience members, <laughs> quite, quite likely. <laughs> I yeah. think in the
6: future everyone will have a podcast for 15 minutes. Yes, yeah, what, is, what is your podcast? It's called uh, uh, Bud Pod. And it's with myself and Reasons to be Cheerful alumnus, yes. Phil Wang. That's just a general humor podcast. Friend of the
2: pod, yeah. as the Americans would friend say. Of, friend of the pod. Well, let's see, see if Pierre
3: can also become friend yeah. of the pod. Well, yeah. I
2: think if you're on the pod, then you're a friend of the pod. Aren't I don't know. There's a few of them. Really? You name name. I, think? <laughs> I won't be naming names. Called enemy of the yes. pod. <laughs> uh,
3: so, um,
6: so, so, Pierre, well, you brought some ideas along with you. Yep. What's, what's your first one? First one, illegal to provide uh, journalism or journalistic services for free. Oh, mm. illegal. Can't do it. So, this is a way of making sure that journalism is properly funded? Yes. This is my crude uh, statist solution to the problem of uh, advertising. Interesting. Because uh, advertising was fine in print media, but now that everything's routed through Facebook and Google, they get all the advertising money like a big beaver dam, and none of it goes to the journalists. And so there's no journalism anymore, local journalism is dying. Blah, blah, blah. So if you just made a law where you say, we don't care if you charge a penny a month, you have to charge something for your news. You can't just have it out there and go, that today's Pepsi headlines, you can't do that. What about
3: citizen journalism? So if I... See some, it's a, As happened to me on one occasion, yeah. if I see somebody sitting on the tube cross-legged with their feet on the seats and I tweet about it, isn't that technically journalism? <laughs> Am I not reporting something that has happened? Uh, storytelling
6: does not come under. <laughs> okay. ju- there's there's a line. Somewhere yes. is a line. Yes, yes. They'll, we'll establish a committee of inquiry or something. <laughs> you know. I know this is going to be a hard process, but I just think that uh, once you set up a thing where people accept, basically, basically it's like compulsory paywall.
0: So, basically, once
6: people accept that they have to go and put up with a paywall, which is hopefully starting to happen more and more, then they will hope oh, because they I have hate to, paywalls.
3: Oh, we all hate them, but like the worst one is when you get a certain number of free articles per month yeah. Yeah. and you accidentally use one of your clicks up on something rubbish. Yes, yes, And yes. then, <laughs> you, you know, it's on the New Statesman website and like yes. you've hit a wall, you can't read this yeah. thing that you really want to yeah. read because you accidentally clicked a link off yeah. Twitter. But you Which don't
2: feel motivated enough to pay anything. Well, well, that's uh, it.
3: If there was just one button that did
2: everything. Yeah.
3: Then instead of having to fill in a form and fill in those little three numbers and forget your password. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
6: all that stuff, then maybe. Because it's like, uh, uh, so if you look at sort of Netflix versus Hulu versus Amazon Prime versus all these streaming services of entertainment, that's starting to to help get money back into production and things that was getting lost through, especially with movies and
2: things. But you know, I'd make an observation about this, which may be wrong and may be right, which is that I think that the revolt in inverted commas against the BBC license fee has gone back into decline because of things like Netflix. In other words, the sort of flat rate subscription thing was like, oh, this is the poll tax of, you know, TV. And now it's sort of what Netflix and lots of other people do i, says, you, 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 I do right. but i've also got sort of like-minded friends who have
3: been ardent bbc supporters their whole life yeah. who've said things to me recently that's like i've always been a big supporter of the bbc but now that i get my news from these places and now oh, that i get I my tv from these places i find myself using it less and less and i wonder if a subscription oh, model see. is the way to go in the future which i don't i mean i'm very happy to pay the license fee and to be paid by The license
2: fee, Um, but it's a So the compulsory nature. Yeah, I see. If you could, yeah.
6: yeah, if you could find a way of, of making it more like a subscription, then what that would do is, and I mean, I, I don't know if I believe the BBC would ever use this weapon, but it'd be nice to know they had it in their arsenal. Then if someone said, do I pay my license fee for a documentary about me? And they whiny idiots write in. <laughs> then uh, then the BBC could go unsubscribe, you fucking asshole. <laughs> We're not making you watch this. What do you think of this idea then?
3: No journalism for free. A desperate attempt. to. I'm not sure. What do you think? Well, I, th- I think I want to see properly funded journalism. Yeah. So there's there's something in it from that perspective. I also don't want Pierre to feel so rejected on his first idea. Okay, fine. We all nearly right. always okay, just we, go uh, with things. Okay, we I don't know it. what's wrong with you this week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it's
2: a flying car, it's fine. But yeah, yeah, okay. Journalistic solution. We love it. We love it. It's great. Uh, all
6: right, what you got next, Pierre? Compulsory statistics education. Oh,
3: yes, I love this. Yeah. So you're a big one on, on compulsory.
6: Yes, yeah. I uh I I've always been a bureaucracy bit, is quite bureaucracy is Yeah. it's quite um civitas yeah, if you're a citizen, it comes with uh, yeah. you know you have to be equipped to be one.
2: Right, so you've got to be compulsory statistics education.
6: Yeah, but the, uh, but it's, there's a there's a caveat. It has Twist. to be pitched in a particular way. Yeah. So um, obviously there's already maths at school.
2: Yeah.
6: And statistics is a subgroup of maths. Yeah. However, there should be a class which is called whatever compulsory statistics. But the way it should be pitched is here is how people are going to try and trick you <laughs> out yes. of your money and
2: life <laughs> and home. And they can show a picture of Boris Johnson and say so yeah. so, you know. <laughs> you know. This, do, when someone tells you $350 yeah. for the NHS, yeah, do it's not a, necessarily true. Yeah,
6: or do a tube announcement. Like, yeah. like, like, play, this man is a well-known scam artist. Yeah. <laughs> Please, do not give him any votes. Exactly. <laughs> he uh, earns a lot more than you or I. Yeah,
4: that,
2: yeah well... <laughs> did you feel you had statistics education o-
6: almost none um, but but and crucially that the, the the twist would have to be that they go oh and see this is how you do a bar chart and then the next lesson would be here's how you do a bar chart if you're a liar you, go, you make <laughs> yeah. sure that the the thing doesn't start at zero you make sure it starts at a million yeah. so a million looks like zero well, and now quite, you're all homeless yes. and yeah. what's quite interesting a lot of the the polls
3: a lot of the statistics uh gatherers they do have all the raw data available for people to look at mm-hmm. they usually funded by somebody who wants to get you know prove a certain point yeah. and that's what
6: the headline is but it'd be nice to be able to delve into those figures and work out what's really going on totally so if you could just equip people with weapons that they're actually really going to need but the only way that uh, you know would you know young people with teenagers are like or what i was like i wouldn't have been interested if someone had said uh oh, if you see there's a long article about medical surgical outcomes i don't care whereas if you'd said someone's going to try and trick you out of a mortgage or something at some point you need <laughs> yeah. to be ready for when they come for you i would have gone okay fair enough <laughs> that's good And yeah. you could dress it up and be like look produce a graph to prove that your uh, partner for this project is uh, a stinky bumhead." yes you know we buy it don't we yes all right uh, what's next mouth noises uh, should be illegal Can you elaborate? It's entirely a a, a pure vanity dictator-style thing. I have um, a real hatred of... I've I've read it called misophonia. Uh, Ah, yes, I have, yes. So, like, people who chew with their mouths open, chewing gum,
2: kind of... Slappy, wet mouth noises. If you can hear saliva. I think this is mm. heading towards a bacon sandwich conversation. No. <laughs> oh, is that my excessive sensitivity? Oh, I admired your technique. Right, thank you. I was you in favour. <laughs> there, there, there wasn't too much noise. Uh, noise wasn't the issue. No. Uh, um, go, go on, say a bit more about the noise.
6: Uh, they just... um. So I I didn't... I'm not the one who, you know, has turned no. it into this condition by calling it misophonia. But uh, some people have it with... um polystyrene rubbing so what about
3: when you listen to podcasts do you do you hear like the saliva slushing around in people's mouths um
6: if it's like just general the noise of a human talking is fine but i did once turn off a podcast um that i really wanted to listen to because the interviewee had decided that they would just talk noisily eat a bag of carrot sticks and talk through them for the first 20 minutes of the interview and that filled me with an instant fury that I can only <laughs> you describe. Know what the
2: trouble is, now you're now making me feel quite worried about conversations I have on the phone where I'm eating carrots. Or uh, I mean, you actually did this last night <laughs> when you oh, sort of rang up. To I was eating my yeah, dinner. Yeah, yeah. You and I actually didn't find it too troublesome. Mm.
6: It's it's totally irrational. It's I I, I can't even. it Not defend sure it, it is that, that
2: irrational, actually.
6: But are
3: you distracted by noises generally? So if I if I rang you from the bath, would the splashing annoy you? Um,
6: it would. Are they, no, not in the same way because it, it's not even like a, a thought process, it's like an instant right. like, irritation it's like um if, but someone, if, there is... it's like if someone kept burping next to you on the train mm. it's 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 similar to that where you go, there's no real reason that the burping is a problem any more than if they were taking a phone call because it's just noise out of a mouth but I would advise you to never take a train journey with my wife. Is she a burper? Oh, like you've never heard. I
3: mean, what? yeah, in, in, in inhuman. Like it, it your, sound,
6: wife, your wife is a burper.
3: Yeah, yeah. And honestly, it sounds like some kind of prehistoric creature right. come <laughs> back through the ages. But is it like constant? It's 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 often. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah. Should we move on? <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> what have you got next, Pierre? You've had lots of very green people on, but I think that owning a car should be like uh, owning a gun. Oh, how so? Ooh. But I, I don't mean it in the sense as. Um, uh, because I, I mean it in the sense of uh, uh, specifically the way that it's possible to own a gun in the UK now. Uh, in the sense that, so if you want to have a shotgun in the UK, it's a lot, or even a small pistol for dealing with, say, rats or something like that, it's quite easy to do if you're a farmer. And you probably need it if you're a farmer. Is it true? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you can get a license for a right. small 2 2 uh, pistol for pest control and things like that. And uh, the same should apply to cars. Well, Farmers need rats them, Apparently. I don't
2: know. Really?
6: Yeah. You, you could is that also friend, is
2: that an effective sort of killing technique well, they're definitely dead I know but it's like I don't know it's a re- moving target isn't that's it? what yeah. I was thought so Yeah, I don't know if yeah, anyway.
6: but if you hit them they're dead I guess right. they're certainly not recuperative anyway oh, we're off the point sorry but, um, so uh, with cars and things, yeah. it's like when you're in Piccadilly Circus and you see a guy in just like a Volkswagen just drive through, you think, "What the fuck are you doing? What, what is your business appointment in Piccadilly Circus? Yeah, that, that you, a normal man, are here in your car?
0: You're a serial killer.
6: What is this?" So you just go, "Okay, no, nothing like that." So like any big urban area where you could easily take health. the bus or a tube, you can have buses, taxis. I mean, I'm quite sympathetic to this. Buses, taxis, ambulances, service industry. I'm the guy driving Michigan. through Beatley Circus occasionally. But anyway,
2: <laughs> but, uh, but do, then, you, do okay. you own a
6: car? No, but I live in a block of flats, so it would be unfeasible for me to own a car. But if you're a farmer, you do need a car because you live in the middle of nowhere. Buses, yep. if they're even there, are irregular. So there should That's be a my kind excuse. Of, there should be a zoning thing. <laughs> Should be a zoning thing. So like, hey, uh, no, you're allowed a car in the same way that you're allowed a shotgun. If you apply for it and you demonstrate a need, you're allowed a license for one. But also the reason I say like guns is because cars and guns are both killing machines. Yes. Where you just sort of go, who's allowed to be in charge yeah, of an e- an explosion powered metal death machine? Mm. Well, anyone really yeah, yeah.
3: from the age of bloody I'm, 17. i I'm far more scared of getting in a car with somebody than I am and go of getting on an aeroplane.
6: Yeah, and I'm biased because as a as a stand up, I have to regularly so the first time I'm meeting someone is me getting a lift with them to the middle of nowhere, four hours away to do a gig. Oh, God, that's
3: so terrifying. You're just
6: consistently in in a car on a highway with a stranger.
3: All right. Well, I think uh, I th- I think we're on board with everything to a greater or a lesser degree. We are. We,
2: we, i think we sort of feel i feel like we could blend the jeffocracy and the pierocracy and mm. it would be the sort of golden mean yeah do you know what i mean yeah okay let's because call. you'd be quite i think you're a little bit more hands-off than pierre yeah because of the amount of effort involved yeah
3: yeah. <laughs> like yeah. pia wants to get that's, all up in people's yeah. business so. well that's the
6: trouble is that i'm i'm ultimately i'm gonna end up david davising my own proposals by <laughs> not being willing to bother to do anything to make
3: them happen you're sort of around. it's
6: your hyperactivity and just hyper passivity combined yeah. i
3: think yeah uh your podcast is bud pod that yes. you do with phil wang and um
6: i'm guessing you're gigging all the time if people want to come and see you yes i actually um the 2nd of the uh, of april to the 6th of april i'm doing last year's edinburgh show at soho theater uh in soho and the name of the show the sh- name of the show is see no valley hear no valley speak no valley. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. which is oh, yeah but what's annoying is that there's a whole bit at the end about brexit and stuff but not the yeah. i tried to make it a sociological thing as a as an integrated naturalized brit why i sort of my take on it so hopefully it shouldn't have aged too badly given that my run starts three days after the 29th of march well I think let's see if that date day. means yeah. anything by then yeah. Well, yeah i'm gonna bring a baseball bat anyway to the <laughs> theater in case rioting mobs have already sprung up. <laughs> we'll look out for it <laughs> <laughs> please do
1: reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd
3: right we should thank our guests oh do we have to go we do Are you do you not want to go back to the day job well, you, you can stay here, pulled up in the I attic. don't think
2: this week is going to be very tempting, do you? What,
3: do you? Do you not think you know anything will be better than last week.
2: I'm not I'm not convinced.
3: We've been telling ourselves that for months now, haven't we? What
2: if I did whatever you do during the week? I'm not quite sure what that is, but <laughs> uh, and then you <laughs> substituted for me. Do you think anyone would notice? I would be happy to give it a who go. Who who would you most be who could you pretend to be though? What do you mean? Well, I'm just trying to think what MP you look like. I look a bit like that guy who wielded the mace. Lloyd Russell Mole. Yes. Maybe. But then if you switched with him, that doesn't help me. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's nothing for it. All right. I'm going to have to go back. Sorry about that. Yeah. it It was worth a try there, wasn't it? Yeah.
3: We should thank our guests.
2: Tyree Johnson, Lola McAvoy, and Torsty Kinsbell.
3: And thanks to the fantastic
2: Pierre Novelli for providing light relief. Had
3: a much-needed week. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with research by Joel Pearce. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the IDENT, said Seed composed the music.
2: Emily Power
3: provided the artwork.
2: (laughs) He's been dry. He's been rad. These have been reasons to be cheerful.
0: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories